1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. Uh, my name is Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm one of the hosts on the channel. I'm very excited today to be speaking to a book that's in fact just won an award. Um, at Visa 2022, the book has won an outstanding first book prize, um, which makes it even more exciting to welcome the author, Dr. Sophie Haspilek, to our podcast to talk about her book titled Prescribing Peace, How Listing Armed Groups as Terrorists Hurts Negotiations. Published by Manchester University Press in 2021, the book offers a systemic examination of the impact of prescription on peace negotiations, which is a really fascinating topic that has both serious theoretical implications, as well as incredibly practical things that people should know when engaging with peace negotiations. So I'm really excited um, to have the opportunity to welcome you, Sophie, to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Miranda. I'm really glad to be uh, speaking with you today.
1: Maybe you could start us off, please, by introducing yourself, your background, and sort of explain why you decided to write this book.
2: Sure. So um, I'm a Flemish Belgian, grew up in France, um, ended up in the UK for my sins, um, for my studies. And then I, um, I worked in the field of conflict resolution and dialogue processes for quite a while and um, working for the UN, for NGOs, for a range of actors. And this leads me to why I started writing this book. Um, uh, it was um, after 9-11 um when I had just finished my, my master's degree, it was actually I was it was during my master's degree that, that 9-11 happened and that the whole war of terror on terrorism uh, took took hold. Um, And I was working in Colombia uh, back in 2004 uh, for International Crisis Group at the time. And um, all the talk was of terror and terrorism. And the previous peace negotiation with the FARC had failed. Uh, President Alvaro Uribe-Vélez was in power. um, And, you know, in one particular speech, he used the word terror 59 times. Um, And I was really struck at the time that, uh, you know, um, any kind of move away from that seemed completely impossible. And so sort of fast forward 12 years later, um, uh, I had uh, decided to to embark on a PhD Um, and it mainly came because I was working for an NGO called Conciliation Resources, I was their head of policy. And we were starting to be very affected, actually, by the terrorist listing and framing itself and some of the legislation. Um, We had a lot of questions on whether we could engage with such a group because it was listed. Uh, What were the kind of legal implications for the staff being, you know, in contact or not? Uh, Did we, you know, infringe on some of the material terrorism, material support to terrorism Uh, regulations. And I realized that there was very little out there uh, in terms of academic work um, on the impact of prescription. So initially, I came to the the question and the idea, really from a perspective of like, how is this impacting sort of third party mediators, you know, uh, the peace builders, the people who were, you know, like me, sort of trying to engage with listed armed groups and then I realized it was quite a slightly egocentric way of looking at the question because obviously these listings you know were having massive um, effects and implications on the whole sort of nature of conflict and peace in Colombia Um, and so the book really comes out of my PhD um, and when I started the PhD in 2012 uh, Juan Manuel Santos who was then the president in Colombia had started a peace negotiation with the FARC, so going back to that image of when I was living in Colombia in 2004 and you know an, an idea of a peace negotiation was completely impossible to that moment in 2012 where you know a negotiation was actually happening in public and on the cards. Um, I got really interested in in trying to unpack well how did we get from here to there, right? Um, uh, right, all governments say that they don't, you know, negotiate with terrorists, but clearly, you know, we do. But how does the effect of calling them, of listing them, of labelling them as terrorists have on the possibilities of engaging them in in peace processes?
1: I really, it makes a lot of sense kind of hearing that background to see how that resulted in the book, right? That focus I already mentioned at the beginning between sort of theory and literature, but also like really practical implications, um, which I think is What makes the book's contributions really clear and really helpful um, is that you manage to do both of those things. And it makes a lot of sense hearing about your background um, that you're able to do that. Um, So I'd love to kind of go through the main points of what you're arguing and especially how that applies to the example of Columbia. Um, But to kind of give us a foundation to be able to do that, uh, could you tell us a little bit about kind of where prescription as a sort of policy tool comes from and how it's changed over time? Sure. So prescription is the act of listing
2: an armed group as a terrorist organization, right? And um, it did exist before 9-11. So actually, uh, the UK was, you know, one of the first countries in 1974 to develop a prescription regime, and it was mainly targeted towards the, the IRA. But then it broadened out uh, in the 1980s, to include other groups uh, at the international level as well, um, in in the US you had a prescription regime from the 1990s onwards. So you had some countries across the world who were using prescription as a tool, you know, to target particular groups to list these groups as terrorist organizations. What you didn't have was um, this sort of multilateral embedding of prescription regime, which very much happened post 9/11. So um, you know. As we all know, after 9-11 happened, the whole world rallied around, um, you know, the US in this particular instance, um, and there was a huge sort of political willingness to to give support, right, and to to kind of come up with policy tools to show um, international solidarity, I guess. Um, And so what happened at the UN level was that um, in September 2001, straight after Uh, the the 9-11 attacks, Uh, the UN Security Council used uh, Chapter 7. So for those of you who know uh, uh, more about the UN, so Chapter 7 is the right to call for self-defense, right? Um, uh, So by the US, uh, you know, asking for the support of of other members of the Security Council. Now, Chapter 7, until that point in history, had never been used against a non-state actor. It had always been used against violence from states. And I think many people don't realize that. Um, So the paradigm shifted completely. Chapter 7 was used um, against the idea of of non-state actors committing terrorism. Um, And so prescription regimes were embedded at that multilateral level. And there's some excellent books that unpack a lot of that uh, that have also come out uh, more recently by Gavin Sullivan on the law of the list or Alice Martini as well on UN counterterrorism that, that are, you know, uh, going into that in, in, in much more detail. But, but basically what happened was that um, prescription became something that was mandatory for all member states of the UN. So across the world, um, whether they're regional organizations, say like the EU or governments, um, were encouraged to develop their own prescription regime. So it means, like in a country here, I'm based now uh, in Egypt. You have, you know, a national prescription regime, and the Egyptian government can decide, you know, who they want um, on this list. Um, and this was done at the UN level without um, explicitly defining what terrorism is, right, or who should be considered a terrorist. So it's a kind of a decentralization of the power of, you know, creating these lists two member states um, and across across the world so really the implication was that uh, you know going back to your question you know how how um, has prescription sort of evolved over time um it, it didn't really exist in its form uh, you know in its multilateral form before 9 11 and now you know 20 years on from 9 11 we have you know hundreds and hundreds of lists uh, worldwide from you know the, the kind of UN multilateral framing that gives us international legitimacy and then, of course, you know a multiplicity of, of lists at the national and, and regional level, really, uh, across the world.
1: I'm really glad you emphasised kind of the unique use of, or that first moment of the use of Chapter 7, um, because that is really important, I think, in the rest of your analysis coming through to explain kind of the impact that this change then had Um, and what I really appreciated in terms of like the usefulness of it is how you then go on to talk about the impact of prescription so it's not just okay all these countries are now doing it but but what does that mean what effect does that have and you divide it up into material impact and symbolic impact could you maybe help us understand kind of what these different impacts are for example in Colombia? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think
2: it's it's helpful, you know,
1: to look at a case
2: to, to understand it more c- concretely. So, um, you know, um, the uses of words have always played a, a role in conflicts, right? We we've always sort of labeled our opponent one way or the other, uh, and that hasn't changed. Um, but what sort of international prescription has done is that it, it has meant that the whole sort of international community sort of stands behind the use of the terrorist label, right? Or if you're a group, you ended up on the list, you know, uh, you are inherently uh, illegitimate, right? Um, And so the the implication of this is that, of course, there are sort of clear symbolic elements around delegitimization, you know, shunning, stigmatization. um, And here I I build on the work, uh, you know, of a lot of the securitization literature, um, also the literature coming out of, uh, you know more labeling and, and that sort of thing, uh, but you also have kind of uh, quite concrete implications because it is at the end of the day a law, right? Uh, so it has also very clear material effects. But kind of what I realized in the case of Colombia is that these aren't sort of separated or segregated; is that the m- symbolic and the material really interact and reinforce each other. So I'll give you a really concrete example from Colombia. Um, so so. You know, the FARC had already been obviously—you uh, know—they were a non-state armed group, insurgent group. Um, they'd been vilified, you know, as uh, any uh, group is uh, in a, in, a, in a context of a civil war in in Colombia. Uh, But post 9 11, and with the reframing of the the conflict as a war of terrorists, what happened was that the the government, uh, the Colombian government, was deeply bolstered in its fight against the FARC. And so this had very concrete material implications. So, uh, um, just to give you um, a specific example, uh, the US Congress in in 2002 um, uh, voted uh, for all the aid that was going towards uh, the fight against uh, drugs, I guess, and anti-narcotics in Colombia to be able to be used in the war against counter-terrorism, right? So what happened was that the Colombian government Received, you know, a huge amount of material support, uh, you know, in um, sort of concrete uh, military equipment, hardware, but also intelligence. You know, uh, quite a wide wide array. Um, But on the other hand, as well, uh, more more symbolically, um, of course, that the FARC were sort of put um, uh, in this idea that you know they were very much beyond the pale. Uh, deeply stigmatized, their whole, you know, political project uh, was was considered, of course, uh, illegitimate, uh, but also um, it had real stigmatizing effects for anyone who might be um, associated with them, right? And, and you see that in a range of armed conflicts uh, across the world. I'm thinking, for instance, as well of the LTT in Sri Lanka. So how the whole, like, Tamil, a uh, uh, project, you know, political project was was deeply uh, delegitimized as well. Or uh, say in the Basque Country, I've, I've recently returned from there, where you had the listing not just of the armed group, but all of the political, cultural, you know, media, youth, etc., all the other affiliations uh, as well. So one of the things I explore in the book is how both the symbolic and material uh, elements impacted, but not just the armed group, but also the government and also potentially third party actors. So I kind of analyze it in terms of how they played off, you know, in terms of the reality of, of these actors, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that does make sense. And I thank you sort of f- for uh, illustrating it with examples, because I think that really helps make the link quite clear. Um, and Colombia, in a lot of ways, seems like a really good case for you, because there are such clear ways in which. Uh, this policy change has an impact Um, but you look at kind of other aspects right it's not just that prescription creates these material and symbolic effects Uh, it also has sort of an impact on uh, not just how outsiders deal with the non-state actor but also within the conflict itself kind of the two the actors that are directly competing and you talk about the perception of symmetry or asymmetry Um, which is really important in a conflict. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about kind of why that perception is so important and particularly how is this impacted when prescription gets involved?
2: Sure. So, you know, one of the things I focus on in the book isn't just the impact prescription has on the nature of the conflict, which, you know, I trace as being pretty major, but also more how it influences the efforts at getting to, you know, a Potential political settlement and negotiation. So I really explore what you could describe as the pre-negotiation phase, you know, of a of a conflict. And here, symmetry and asymmetry is key. So um, it's all about power, right? So um, something like prescription, uh, as I described earlier, obviously uh, deeply bolsters, you know, the government versus uh, the the armed group. But what it also does is that. Um, it affects the possibility of of creating, I guess what you could describe as a, a sense of symmetry, which is often essential to get a negotiation off the ground. So once, you know, um, opponents, armed uh, actors, conflict parties get to the decision of of, of maybe negotiating a a way out of of an armed conflict, um, it's really important. And I mean, a lot of the negotiation literature shows this, that you have to create a sort of a sense of symmetry. So you're never going to get an actual symmetry, an actual fact, right? But you can create a process that gives a form of recognition, a certain status, you know. you can, you can sort of create uh, this symmetry through the process uh, that will allow, you know, both parties at the end of the day um, will have a veto on the outcome, right? They can each pull out of the negotiation. So that inherently gives them, you know, a certain um, equality, if you like, you know, um, over, over the process and and the power. And so one of the things that I explore is how, how prescription affects this and how um what has happened and it's very relevant for colombia but i think in a lot of other contexts in the world is that the burden of proof or if you like or like the is is has been shifted completely onto the shoulders of the non-state actors and so there's a real um, um that's the word i'm looking for sort of um dislike or refusal to give um any sense of state, status, you know, or um, uh, recognition, you know, to to that other actor. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in the case of Colombia, it's the FARC who had to take a whole number of unilateral steps uh, to build confidence in the lead up uh, to, to the peace negotiations. So, unilateral ceasefires, the government uh, always refused to have a bilateral ceasefire, for instance, uh, you know, unilateral releases of hostages, you know, so you see a lot of more sort of unilateralism, as it were, um, you know, in, in the lead up um, to, to, to these processes.
1: I think that's a really interesting aspect of it, um, and in a lot of ways, that makes the uh, like barrier to entry, I suppose, of negotiations like that much harder because uh, you're asking one side to do a bunch of stuff that the other side isn't asked to do, or asked to have them go first. Um, exactly, and I think and, I guess
2: what. Sorry, Miranda, I'm jumping no, in. Go ahead. Is it all right? I think one of the things that came out for me really strongly, you know, writing this book and 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 you know thinking about the sort of broader um, picture, is that um, the whole sort of terrorist framing, in effect, um, while it might sort of um, encourage, um, you know, uh, this perception that militarily, you know, the war is being won, as it were, you know, against terrorism. In effect, what it does is that it goes against one of the central ideas in, I guess, conflict resolution theory, which is rightness. Um, And I think we were... Um, uh, we we can get into that, but basically the idea is that um, um, you know uh, two parties need to be feeling uh, you know the pain of the conflict, right, to want to sort of exit it, but by um, by, um, you know, listing the other party as terrorists and you're creating them as um, a sort of an entity that's non-negotiable, that's irrational. Um, You're making it impossible for that entity to envisage, obviously, a political way out, but you're also making it impossible for your own citizens or your public to ever imagine, you know, being able to negotiate with such a group, right? So you're you're really raising the entry costs, increasing the barriers uh, to
1: negotiation which doesn't really necessarily help get to negotiation. Um, but I would love to kind of poke at that a little bit, because ripeness theory is such a big part of kind of the study of civil wars and negotiation. So how kind of taking your book into account, taking your argument into account, how does that change what we should understand about ripeness theory going forward?
2: So I think, uh, you know, the evidence that came out of the Columbia case really sort of shows that what prescription does is almost um, shift the parameters or you know it does what you wouldn't expect it to do right so uh, you know you would assume that by uh, listing an armed group as terrorist, and you're uh, you know supporting the government so much that they're going to war win this war you know uh, against the armed group and that somehow it's going to you know lead towards peace if you're going to have a sort of quite basic uh, understanding of it and often that's how for instance even the war in Colombia has been framed the, the peace process there that you know the FARC were battered and bruised to the negotiation table right that's kind of quite a common understanding oh they only got there because you know the government gave it to them so tough, basically. And that was also thanks to the terrorist framing. But in actual fact, what my book shows is that, yes, of course, you know, they were really beaten and bruised, and nobody denies that, right? It was, you know, brutal, and, 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 and the, the armed group was very much affected. Uh, so was, you know, the government as well, to, to, to a large extent. But, but what also happened was that uh, it, it's, it's much more complex than that, and it led to lots of other costs, so um, in rightness theory, we have this idea of the mutually hurting stalemate on the one hand, and then the way out on the other. So when it comes to the mutually hurting stalemate, it's this idea that um, you know both parties are going to feel a hurt right towards uh, in the conflict, and so are going to want to exit from from that hurt um, uh, because they can no longer you know escalate beyond that. Uh, and so I guess what I unpack is that this hurt. Is not necessarily just military, it can also be political. And so, for instance, in the case of Colombia, there were a lot of elements in that strategy that was underpinned by the terrorist framing that really came back to hurt them. So, for instance, a lot of the um, human rights violations that came with this very sort of uh, intense military strategy, like extrajudicial executions, for instance, um, you know. Uh, um, Ended up leading, for instance, to the to the U.S. trade g- agreement being put on hold, and that was felt very much by the Colombian government, realizing, you know, the limits, if you like, of, of their military strategy as well. So, the pain, if you like, isn't necessarily just military; it can also be political. But I think the biggest um, lesson of the book, when it comes to ripeness theory, is about the way out. It's that you know, the mutually hurting stalemate at the end of the day, if you have nowhere to go, is not going to lead to rightness. And, you know, Zartman in his initial theory, of course, also highlighted this, but it's often been lost along the way. And I guess in my analysis, I try and reinstate the importance of the way out. The way out being, you know, where does this conflict go if it's not armed? You know, what is the political space? Um, And I guess um, uh, the issue with prescription is that it makes the um, the possibility of a negotiated solution impossible and so you have to have this kind of intermediary step uh, which i've described as the linguistic ceasefire and we can get into that but but what happens is is that it kind of makes it much more protracted much longer much more complicated um, and and also it, it really shifts the nature of of the, the 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 type of peace process that you can have um and, and that's kind of where in the book I really unpack the differences between the peace negotiation that led to the Taiwan negotiation, the pre-negotiation process, and the one that the most recent ones towards Havana. I don't know if we can, that's a little bit too detailed, but um, but there's some really fundamental differences between those two processes.
1: Could you maybe highlight for us one or two of those biggest differences perhaps so
2: of course i mean you know they they, they were i'm not saying that all the differences are 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 due to prescription right but what you do see is that in the first instance so pre-9-11 you had a pre-negotiation process that was at the highest level of government between the two leaders shaking hands you know Backslapping. you had a very immediate uh, devilification, you know, they were given the status, so the asymmetry-symmetry element we were just discussing, you know, was very immediate. Um, It was all happening in Colombia, civil society would have access to all the different actors, even international actors, third parties, etc. It was kind of quite fluid, uh, and the devilification process happened very immediately. In the case of Havana, um, the pre negotiation process itself took two years. And the first public handshake between the president of Colombia and the leader of the FARC at the time, um, Timoshenko, uh, Rodrigo Londoño, um, happened two years in the formal negotiation. So it kind of describes to what extent sort of how difficult it was to establish a public negotiation that made the government and the FARC seem as they were, you know, negotiating in in equal parts, if you like. As equal parts.
1: Thank you for kind of explaining that. I think that comparison really kind of shows the impact. And I want to sort of ask you to elaborate on another bit of your answer, um, kind of how you talk about, well, it creates, it makes it a longer process to get to negotiations. Um, And you kind of have a solution for this in your book, or you you talk about sort of how we can think about that longer process. Um, You call it the political landing strip. Um, Can you tell us about kind of what that is and how they can be created?
2: Yeah, so the political landing strip has to come alongside one of these other elements I described, which is the linguistic ceasefire that I should probably um, also uh, unpack a little. But The, um, the political landing strip is um, this idea that uh, for, the, for the listed group to be able to see or envisage um, you know, an exit out of the armed strategy, they have to have a political way out. They have to have somewhere for them to go. And, you know, if they're illegalized, um, listed, uh, you know, uh, pushed underground, um, well, then that's kind of near impossible. And of course, that goes hand in hand with this terrorist framing and rhetoric, because obviously the idea is, well, if they're terrorists, they're obviously non-political, they don't have, you know, they shouldn't have anywhere to go. But in actual fact, many of these groups that are listed as, as terrorist organizations, you know, do have, um, a political reality grievance, they do have, you know, communities as well that they represent. So in the case of the FARC, the, the political landing strip had a lot to do with um uh you know grassroots movements, political movements. There was also a very interesting um exchange that was done which was very unusual and because of the nature of the listing. So um, they had an epistolary, so a letter exchange, if you like, with a a group of about 40 uh, or more, actually, um, intellectuals uh, and civil society actors and academics, Colombianos and Colombianas for La Paz. Um, And in these, sorry, I was mixing up. So I think they, so there were about 30 letters that were exchanged with this group. And over the course of, for years they um, released unilaterally uh, 40 hostages that they were keeping. So you had these sort of spaces uh, where uh, you know the FARC would try and engage in this you know sort of humanitarian and political dialogue with members of civil society and academics but because they couldn't do that physically they were doing that for instance through uh, these public letter exchanges or you see you know um, other engagement at a much more localized level. Uh, through pastoral dialogues, which were dialogues that were sort of given cover by the church, um, if you like. Um, so it's very interesting to see in spaces where contact and and you know is impossible, and listing makes this contact very impossible. It still happens because often of innovations, right, from civil society actors, often at the most kind of grassroots level. Um, um, you know, through through throughout a, a conflict, but none of that would have happened. Any of these kind of you know this possibility of of having a, a political future, if you like, if it hadn't been for for the linguistic ceasefire. So maybe I can jump into that, Miranda. Please go for it. <laughs> okay, thanks. So basically, um, the concept of um, uh, vilification and the importance of devilification again in conflict resolution and and in sort of peace processes is very established. So you need to have a certain element of devilification; otherwise, you can't sort of create enough trust. At least um, you're not going to already have trust, but you have to have enough. Uh, that you can just start and initiate a process right with with your opponent, but also for your citizens to even accept the possibility that you might want to be be doing that. And so in the context of prescription, um, our understanding of vilification and devilification was sort of not enough theoretically. And so that's kind of really when I went back to the empirics and in the case of Colombia. And what was fascinating for me was when I was interviewing people and so the whole book is based on about uh, fifty interviews. Um, you know with conflict parties and analysts but also I did a sort of a discourse analysis over 20 years um, of the statements made by the FARC and the Colombian government Um, and so what started coming up in all these empirics was a complete shift in the rhetoric of uh, President Juan Manuel Santos exactly at the moment where conditions were starting to be created for like the pre-negotiation process, right? Even two years before the formal negotiation. And so that was fascinating to me. And I started really unpicking and, and unpacking that. And so um, it kind of ended up, you know, in the book as this idea of the linguistic ceasefire. And so what does that mean? Um, in effect, the linguistic ceasefire has sort of three main components. So the first one, the first step was that you really notice um, that the presidents re the existence of the conflict. So, before that, it was all terrorism. Talk of terrorists, you wouldn't see any na- mention of the FARC of, under the eight years of the Uribe presidency. They'd kind of been morphed into this, you know, uh, idea of, of worldwide terrorism. But you would never see even their acronym or their name, you know, being used. Right? They had kind of been erased um, from from the reality of the Colombian conflict. And so, what you see Juan Manuel Santos do is he reacknowledges the fact that there is a conflict, there is a political conflict in Colombia, and it's not just a war against terrorists. The second thing he does is that he completely drops the terrorist label when it comes to describing the group. So you'll still see him use it to describe certain particular armed actions you know, that he considers to be terrorist actions, but you'll no longer see the group itself being associated with the terrorist label. So there's a kind of you know, uh, disjuncture there. And so the third point is really that there's this separation, if you like, I was just describing now, between the act and the actor. So the idea that, yes, you can use terrorism to describe the act, but not the actor anymore. And so um, I I really think what it did was to um, create that space, that possibility that that the FARC could become something else than terrorists, you know? even if they did sometimes commit, or they had definitely in the past committed some terrorist actions, it didn't mean that they necessarily had to stay you know, and remain terrorists, that you could not negotiate with them. And so basically this linguistic ceasefire, which was really obvious in the in the in the discourse analysis that 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 i did what was really interesting was also how it played out from the perspective of the farc because in my interviews with them what was so important they kept on saying how you know well you know with juan manuel santos what was different was that you know he acknowledged the existence of the conflict they would you know so they really it, it played out in terms of the farc that they felt that he was actually also someone that they could negotiate with, right? It's a very di- dialectical, you know, it's a it's a relational dynamic, a peace process. And so it's also about the kind of, um, um, uh, how would you describe it, um, uh, sort of signals that are passed as well between, you know, between the different actors.
1: Well, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier around perception, right, and how that's such a key, Part of it, even if it's in a lot of ways intangible, the idea of, you know, being able to hear a report and go, oh, actually, hang on, he doesn't sound like the other guys or he doesn't sound like he used to. Maybe there's an opening here. Exactly, to shift it, because in effect, they thought he was going to
2: continue Uribe's policy because he was his minister of defense. So they had very, Mm -hmm. very low expectations when he came to power. And I think the shift in the rhetoric, the fact that he recognized the conflict, but also enshrined it, for instance, in the victim's law um, and, you know, made a a few very clear overtures towards them, I think gave them confidence that, hang on a minute, this might be quite different. This
0: episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: So that's clearly sort of something that can be taken to other contexts and other conflicts, right? An idea of hang on, have you thought about a linguistic ceasefire? What could that look like in this context? Could that make some sort of overture for negotiations? Um, if we think about kind of the other parts of the book and going back to the idea of the political landing strip, are there any other sort of key tools or possible tools that you would almost recommend um, following that idea of a linguistic ceasefire? I mean, I think the
2: the ling- the what's important with the linguistic ceasefire idea is more the broader understanding of how uh, you know narratives and labels can shift um, the story of a conflict, right? But also towards resolution. So I think um, what's very applicable to uh, concretely as well to to other um, armed contexts, but also politically as well, and we've seen it in recent years, is also how, Uh, much more sort of extreme framing, um, you know, makes um, engagement between two sides much harder. Um, And so obviously with a terrorist label, it's extreme in the sense that what I'm looking at is also the listing, right? So it's not just the use of the word, but it also is embedded in a whole legal framework with, you know, very direct implications um, as well. So, you know, the, the linguistic ceasefire was just sort of a moment, right, to get things off the ground. But then, obviously, much more has to come. And so, in the case of the FARC, the, the group was um, delisted um, by the EU, by the US, um, and so there were fundamental shifts. But what hadn't happened, and now, you know, with the recent Colombian elections, and and Gustavo Petro um Uh, winning recently there might be hope um, uh, that things get better but since the signature of the peace accord it's been hugely challenging um, for the FARC actually in this transition process and um, I really think that the the terrorist label has has still really stuck to them they haven't really been able to shake it off I think one of the fundamental issues has been that um, the media hasn't stopped using the term at all i think once you sort of you know let something loose like that uh, at a political level then it takes on a life of its own and it was really interesting to me because um in 2015 so three years into the formal negotiation you had president santos calling on the media to say um Please stop calling them terrorists. You know they're transitioning. We need to move on. We need to put the conflict behind us, etc. And the media, you know, still using uh, this terminology. And so, when the the peace referendum was rejected in Colombia in in two thousand and sixteen, um, you know, I mean, I wasn't necessarily so surprised because so little work had been done. You know, at the much broader population level, uh, people, you know, had this. I, image um, of the FARC, of course, as as merely terrorists. So why would we agree to, you know, a a peace agreement with them? And uh, one of the very unfortunate um, sides um, of um, this has been um, also the killing, you know, of FARC led leaders, but also um, of, uh, you know, Afro-Colombian indigenous uh, leaders, other Sort of grassroots activists who are oft, often seen as associated with the FARC, um, you know, since the the the, the peace agreement uh, was signed. So um, I think uh, the latest count in January 2021 was that about 253 leaders of the FARC had been assassinated. Um, so there's kind of continued stigmatization, continued polarization. Has been really, really raw, you know, and still vivid in in Colombia. So I wouldn't want to sort of, you know, sell a false story here. That I think what I what I argue in the book is that the linguistic ceasefire was sort of essential to get the negotiation off the ground, right? But it wasn't quite enough, you know, to 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 fundamentally reshape, as it were, the relationships and you know the kind of the post conflict environment, um, either.
1: Well, in some ways. The fact that there was such a difference between the sort of ability of political elites to negotiate an agreement at all, and but the difference in kind of how it was discussed in public, in some ways that actually em- emphasizes the importance of the linguistic ceasefire because you have it in one arena and see progress able to happen from there, and you don't see it in the other arena, and in fact, then it's just stopped. So... I actually think it in some ways lends it more weight, um, which is really interesting. And I kind of wanted to ask a little bit about that because you've just really helpfully explored the impact of not having a linguistic ceasefire um, in the public arena. But could you maybe tell us a little bit more about kind of how you think prescription, the lifting of prescription, the changing of the language around it? Um, We've talked about it in terms of getting to negotiations and we've talked about it in terms of what the public did or did not kind of was or was not brought along with it but what about in the actual negotiations itself i mean
2: i think it plays um an important role but more vis-a-vis the relationship between the public you know and the government right so um in the case of uh, colombia i think within the negotiation themselves what I gathered from my interviews was that the tone was always very sort of respectful on all sides, you know, they definitely didn't, nobody used the terrorist sort of word uh, or, or label, uh, you know, so they got to that stage and the, the interactions were, you know, obviously it was very difficult and it was a long drawn out um, sort of negotiation, but it was done, um, you know, in a very sort of, uh, how to say it, Framed and constructive way, if you like. Um, and I think also both sides sort of really humanized each other throughout the process, right, of spending so long sitting there in Cuba, you know, negotiating, being on these different working group levels, um, etc. Um, I think uh, when um, the, the impact of prescription, what the impact can have, you know, during a negotiation process, you can think of different cases where listing might have happened bang in the middle of a negotiation. And here I can think of the case of of, of the LTTE, for instance, in Sri Lanka. So uh, the EU ended up listing the LTTE right in the middle of um, a formal negotiation process between, um, you know, the LTTE and the, and the Sri Lankan government. And that had, um, you know, a really negative um, effect, um, you know, in the midst of of these negotiations. And what was a little bit surreal was that something like the EU listing is a classic bureaucratic tool, right? So it had been agreed way before, but it being the EU, you know, it sort of came to be at a moment that politically was completely inopportune. You know, it was the wrong time and the wrong moment. And so that's the issue with prescription is that it's a super blunt instrument tool. It also doesn't differentiate at all between different groups, and it really homogenizes, um, you know, who is on these lists, right? Mm -hmm. So you have, uh, uh, say, I don't know, in the UK's list, you'll have, you know, a group like um, uh, ETA alongside, um, um, you know, Hamas, Hezbollah, or Al-Qaeda, or, you know, um, uh, the Real IRA, um, and the PKK, for instance, you know, so it it also um, sort of if you like, uh, I would argue that the prescription itself, the lists themselves, and that's something that uh, someone like Gavin Solvenven also describes, and, and Marika de Goud, uh, that the lists create a reality. So what prescription does, in effect, is that it kind of, um, you know, reinforces a lot of the, the makes group, these groups into almost something else and kind of makes association between these groups that, you know, didn't exist uh, beforehand, right? So it's kind of a very, um, I mean, it's a fascinating space, I think, for scholarly research and study. Uh, I'm really excited because, you know, since I started the PhD and then, uh, you know, transformed that into the book and I've been working on it for a while now, but it's, it's becoming really an increasingly... Uh, you know, energized and dynamic space of research. So there you know, m- more people working on, on the issue and, you know, younger researchers like master's students will get in touch with me and others, you know, who, who want to work on the impact of prescription. Or um, So I think that's, that's really exciting.
1: That's really cool. Um, I'm glad to hear that. And I wanted to kind of, in addition to the academics that are interested in it, I was wondering actually to go back to your question you mentioned in the your own introduction, where you said, oh, well, that's a bit narcissistic. But I'm actually really curious and was wondering if you could um, tell us a little bit about kind of all of this. We've been talking a lot about um, the impact of prescription on the non-state actor, on the dynamics of the conflict, on relationships with other countries, on relationships with the public in the country. Um, but how does prescription impact third party people who get involved like you were before your PhD?
2: Yeah, so I think the book, basically concludes that you know it does um, and in, in, in a way it reinforces a lot what of what these organizations themselves you know had been saying through much more sort of uh, practitioner analysis of you know specific case studies or that sort of thing so um, what seems to be happening is that prescription is affecting where third-party actors um, are able and willing you know to act who they can engage with or not, what kind of funding can be used or not. Um, And uh, I think this is particularly concerning. Uh, I think there's an added dimension when it comes to the Middle East or to conflicts that have been framed as sort of Islamic armed conflict. There seems to be a sort of an increased aspect of the phenomenon. Uh, So that's also something that I'm exploring in in, in some future research. but at the end of the day, what you're seeing is that uh, a lot of third-party actors or mediators uh, are not necessarily always um, um, sort of concerned about the legal repercussion, but also the political repercussion. You know how they're going to be perceived. Say, you know, a charity uh, in the UK that has UK charity status, right? Um, uh, you know being seen to be you know uh, working and engaging with a particular listed group so what you see is also quite a lot of self-censorship um, and then you see you know very um, concrete elements of um, uh, you know if you the U.S. law comes with a uh, the risk of, of spending 15 years in jail for being in contact with the estate group, whether you're trying to convince them to lay down their weapons or not, you know? So that's kind of very specific and it has an impact way beyond American citizens because it's extraterritorial. So um, at the end of the day, uh, you know, that was kind of my starting point. And I guess one of the conclusions is that, yes, it does have an impact on third-party actors. However... Because a lot of mediation outfits and third-party actors are very sort of risk, um, what's the word, resilient and very resourceful. You also see a lot of these innovative mechanisms, like I described, you know, around letter exchanges, for instance, or using, you know, different ways of being in contact with a group. So what you're seeing is like you're seeing a lot of the diplomats, if you like, being pushed out of the game. So when uh, a lot of governments might have played a leading role Um, you know, negotiating with certain armed groups, now what you see is much more sort of nimble, uh, you know, dynamic, sort of lower key organizations um, and more discreet, often, you know, playing, playing these roles. And so I think that's also really important to reflect on that, to reflect on, okay, so who has access to these groups, what information do we have on these groups, and also more broadly for researchers as well, right? The kind of the impact it's having on on the possibility of doing this kind of research. So uh, even for myself, when I was doing my PhD, obviously, you know, you you go through these ethics committee, which, you know, is completely normal. We all have to do that. But the fact that... in my case, the FARC weren't listed uh, by by the UK was um, uh, uh, really helpful. Um, And it it means that I wouldn't have been able to do this research, say, um, for instance, on Netta, who was listed at the time, and I'm doing some research on now, for instance, and, and their transition process, you know, so... I think uh, we really have to reflect on um, how, how the counterterrorism framing and prescription regime is also affecting our ability um, to, to do research um, and to understand these, these groups.
1: That's a really interesting point um, about research, so I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people. And interesting as well that it's kind of the diplomats uh, that might, might be more bureaucratically constrained, for example, to take these innovative steps. Um, So I'm I'm glad I asked that, and I'm glad you mentioned it at the beginning, because that was, um, I think, quite a useful addition to what you've discussed um, about what you've talked about in your book. And obviously, to the listeners, you know, everything we've talked about so far is in more detail in the book, if you're interested. So this is very much kind of a high-level tour of the book. Um, But I wanted to ask a little bit now, as we come towards the end of the interview, about some of the process of writing the book, right? Because this comes from a lot of places. It comes from your practical experience. It comes from academic research. It comes from uh, you said up to fifty, about fifty interviews, um, and quite a long process. There was a lot of you know effort that went into this. And I was wondering if there are any things in particular that you remember being really surprised about when you came across them um, in that process. I know, for example, as a reader, there were some things that jumped out at me, like just how many times the word terrorist was or was not used in particular sets of speeches, for example. Um, but was there anything in particular that comes to mind about surprise in the process?
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that I, I want to highlight is um, how this idea of the linguistic ceasefire came about, because I think it's good as uh, you know academics to also be sort of... Um, uh, transparent about how this sausage is made right how do we go about doing this research and I think I describe it as a in the book as a mix of sort of inductive and inductive reasoning but you know the back and forth between the theory and the empirics you know all the time and so um, one of the things that really struck me is and I knew this obviously from before, because I'd worked in Colombia, but the level of political analysis in Colombia, wherever you are, the smallest village, you know, the most sort of uh, um, isolated environment is is incredibly sophisticated. I've always been very impressed. Um, And And it's really in my interviews and conversations that people were mentioning this sort of toning down of the rhetoric and the narrative on the part of the government, like analysts were picking up on it, of course, because they were living it and experiencing it, right? And then it's when I went back and looked at the text, so when I did this discourse analysis, right? But I tried to do it uh, in a very sort of contextualized in historical framing, so I did it over 20 years, so it was a lot a lot of statements I had to go through, but really to trace the way both the government and the FARC had typified each other over that period of the conflict, how it shifted and how easily or, or with difficulty did it shift, that I, I could really notice the pattern, right? what you're describing, the number of times that the word terrorist was used and how it suddenly disappeared and who was still using it and who wasn't, you know. Um, and so I think one thing I would like to acknowledge is I think often in research we don't acknowledge enough uh, the uh, the analysis that comes out of uh, our um, participants I guess you know the people that we interview and so in the book I try to highlight this um, that that uh, you know and be transparent about how our ideas emerge as well. Um, so, you know, uh, from conversations and then coming back to the empirics and then going back to the theory and realising that, you know, there isn't such a thing, so then how do you describe it, you know? And I found that really exciting, actually, um, you know, during during the whole process of, of, of researching and,
1: and writing the book. I'm so glad that that was an exciting process for you. It's wonderful when research is both intellectually interesting and also like, oh, oh, I'm figuring this out. Oh, that was a really interesting conversation that's now going to be thinking about this. Uh, so that's really good to hear. Um, and I, I, I do always ask this question because it is so interesting and so useful, I think, to hear about that sort of behind-the-scenes making of the sausage part of academic research. Um, and so as my final question, uh, perhaps a cheeky one, because the book obviously is quite new and you have worked on it a lot, um, but it is done now. So what are you working on now? Come on, Miranda. No I'm joking. <laughs> um,
2: I actually I actually am. I'm I, I just started going back um this month uh, to to field work and interviews. so I uh, because you know with covid it's it's kind of been quite hard. Um, but so, One of the key, another, I guess, thing that came out for me through the book um, that slightly shifted the way I I was seeing things was that um, I feel that when we often talk about um, terrorism, you know, we completely focus on the non-state actor. And one of the big lessons of the book is that actually prescription affects the state as much as the non-state actor, you know, and you have to look at both Of these actors in your analysis and so i'm interested and intrigued uh, by the idea that we should use the tools that we normally use say to understand non-state actors you know and the tools that we normally use to understand state actors and you know are they or not that different and and you know i come from the field of international relations where we obviously you know tend to focus quite a lot on the state so I'm trying to flip that around a bit and uh, my, my sort of um, ongoing and future research, uh, which I'm, I'm just starting off now on, is to use tools that we've used to understand um, the diplomacy of states and the foreign policy of states, but on non-state actors. So I'm trying to, again, coming at it from the empirical side and looking at a range of cases um, and to try and see how they do international relations. And how, and how similar or not is it with the state? And, and do the concepts we know uh, of diplomacy and foreign policy, do they actually fit you know, non-state actors as well? Or is there something else going on? And obviously, I'm particularly interested in, in this transition still from you know, kind of violence to, 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 to other strategies, to, to non-violence. I'm trying to understand what role international relations plays in that transition, uh, if you like.
1: Okay. Well, you've got at least one reader. Because uh, that sounds fascinating. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> so I need to read so, that next book. <laughs> great. Please go write that next book. Um, and while you are off doing that, listeners can look at the book that we've been mainly talking about, which, as a reminder, is titled Prescribing Peace How Listing Armed Groups as Terrorists Hurts Negotiations, published by. Manchester University Press in 2021 and again just won a BISA award uh, for outstanding first book Um, thank you so much Dr Sophie Haspelech, for being on the podcast and sharing your thoughts with us
2: thanks so much Miranda I really enjoyed our conversation